0: I think it's huge. I mean, you, I think we have to understand whether you're an activist or advocate, or you're just someone going out your, your daily life and you're frustrated by something, or if you're in city hall and you're working to advance and you know you love your city and you're trying to make it a better place. Everybody has their limitations and their frustrations, and the processes which we have to work within are not always perfect. You know, they're never perfect. Let's say, and understanding where people are coming from and that experience is really important. Just humanly to understand that we all are trying to do things that are positive right um, without that perspective then you tend to really clash and um, and you disrespect one another and that doesn't get anyone far ever
1: from this to this this is livable city a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places i'm your host jim Hodapp. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Liberal City. I'm Jim Hodep. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to Liberal City. I am so excited to introduce my guest today. But before I do, I just wanted to offer you some reflections on the changing nature of our streets during the coronavirus. Have you stopped to think about how quickly our streets have changed, seemingly overnight? It's absolutely Remarkable. For years, many of us have worked on changing our streets, advocating with our local city leaders, asking our leaders to reprioritize them to not just be for automobiles, but to be for human beings, to be out walking, cycling, sitting on a chair in the middle of the street, whatever, just not in a car. And just like that, a global pandemic hits the world. And seemingly overnight, the use of our streets in our cities has fundamentally changed. The monotonous rhythm of the daily commute in and out of the city to and from the suburbs is seemingly irrelevant overnight. That's absolutely remarkable. We've been forced to shelter in place by our leaders, which has basically forced us to stay where we live. How many of us have truly experienced where we live this local before in our entire lives? Just take a little bit of time and reflect on that. The rules of the streets have changed forever. The assumptions and the rules on which our streets were built before the pandemic will never again be the same. This crisis has shown us just how livable our streets can be when they're not dedicated to noisy, polluting, honking, fast-moving cars. When we have the space and the safety to move out into our streets confidently, we experience our cities like we never have before. So with that in mind, let me introduce my guest today. My guest is Mike Leiden, founder and principal of Street Plans, an urban design firm in San Francisco, Miami, and New York City. He's also author of the popular book, Tactical Urbanism. Mike's been interviewed by just about everybody. NPR, New York Times, CNN, ABC, CityLab, you name it. If you want to know how to get started doing technical urbanism, Mike is your guide. In this episode mike reminds us what cities and compact living truly are for which is super important to reflect on and remember especially as the nature of cities come under question with the coronavirus pandemic mike also reflects on how he got started with open streets miami which is an event where miami shuts down quite a few miles of prominent streets for only being used on foot or on bike there's a ton of practical advice on the nuts and bolts of how he brought this about. This was such a fun conversation for me since I had just recently read Mike's book and I had so many questions for him. You're really gonna enjoy his energy and his thoughts and reflections on cities and technical urbanism. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation with Mike. Mike, welcome. So happy to have you on the podcast. I'm a very big fan of your work, especially your book, Tactical Urbanism with your co-author Tony Garcia. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. I see you're uh based on some of your profiles online and, and following you a little bit, you're you're quite an active person. I've had some interviews, NPR, New York Times, C N B C, all those different things, uh, Wired magazine. And you started an urban design planning firm, Streets Plans. Clearly sitting around your couch not doing a whole lot.
0: <laughs> 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 I know. The 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 myth of oh, we all have so much more time right now is just Not a thing for a small business owner at this time uh, with a young family, but yeah, it's it's a a very busy time.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, based on that, your work and um, some of those interviews you've had, you clearly love cities and you love great urban spaces. So, um, take us back a little bit in your life story. Where and when does this love affair begin?
0: (laughs) You know, I think it's almost from from year three, let's say. Um, My I'm from rural Maine. So I grew up in a very small town of a couple thousand people. Um, But I always liked going to town. I always liked going to Portland, which is the big city in Maine. I always loved even more going to Boston, the big capital of New England, as a kid. And that was for all sorts of reasons, whether it's sports games, or going to science museums, or all the things that were happening there always were very exciting to me. So from a very young age, I started building cities out of blocks in my room, which turned into SimCity. Uh, as a video game pursuit it's one of the only video games i was allowed to play growing up i love that game (laughs) it's a great game (laughs) my wife rolls her eyes at me when i say that but um and then that became (laughs) more of an academic interest um through you know research projects in school and then um in college i did a thesis on uh some very um pertinent planning and cultural issues in maine at the time and um yeah, I really just kind of knew it from that point forward that I wanted to get into the field. So I've always liked places that are, you know, busy with people and have a mix of things going on. And, you know, I always kind of hearken back to thinking, why why did I get so interested in big cities? But if you think about the main street where I grew up, it's, you know, three or four blocks of three to four-story mixed-use buildings, very walkable, even just for the three blocks. And when you go to a city, it's just that repeated and repeated and repeated. So, um it's really just made sense to me that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and what do you love about that? You know, so uh, you fell in love with it in Maine with a small version. So what what scaled up there in your love to the big version?
0: Well, I think it was being exposed to the big version. You know, I think there's not a lot of exposure when you grow up in a rural state to big cities. Um, you know, Boston being that exception. You know, the few times I traveled um, as a kid to big cities, you know, my parents weren't really into that as much. But we went to Europe a couple times. and. Went to Chicago to visit my sister when she lived there. Um, my other big sister lived in, in in Boston, so I was there a lot um, for a lot of reasons. So I always just got interested in that. But as I began to travel more as an adult, it just kind of grew on itself. This interest in the diversity of places and their histories and how you can feel those layers and see those layers as you walk streets in the present day is just fascinating. Um, and I particularly got interested in streets and public spaces. It's kind of the conduits of of public life and um, where we all kind of have an opportunity to meet each other and, um, and share in the city. And that's why I'm so interested and focused on the spaces between buildings, because that's exactly it. It's like where we all get to commune or not, depending on how places are designed.
1: Yes. Yes. I couldn't agree more. Um, so you touched on something a little bit I want to press into. Um, and that is, I think you were hinting at really what cities are for and what they're really not for. Um, one thing I noticed, you know, I do, I do some av- advocacy work here in Chicago. I've done some in Indianapolis, and I'm in the Twitter sphere, right, of urbanism and that. And it uh, seems like a lot of us lose sight of really what cities are all about sometimes and we get too hyper focused on some specific things. Or the opposite folks that aren't into cities have no clue really what the draw and attractions of cities are. So, what do you think cities really are for?
0: I mean, I think at the highest level, it's about exchange. You know, it's about exchange of ideas, it's about exchange of culture, it's exchange of money and economy, um, and ex- exchange of uh, opinions. You know, um, this is where all that's possible. And the more you dilute that, or you know, disaggregate those opportunities to to share, um, you know, the less you'll see that happening. So, um, I think it really is the the Um, that intermingling of so many different factors of life that have always interested me about cities and inspired me. So, um, you know, here in New York uh, being the biggest city in the U S like, I just really felt like as I got more and more into this, I had to be here because that's where um, there was the most of that happening, um, you know, kind of per capita, if you want to put it that way. So, um, you know, it's not a city for everybody, but it's definitely been a city for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what it, what is it about New York in particular, um, given what you said, what a city really is for, that that draws you?
0: Well, we have all of that. You know, we have all that exchange happening all the time on our streets and in our neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. you know, you can go ten miles from here and be in the Bronx, and it'll be as dense and active, if not more so, than you know, five miles to so the south of me in Brooklyn. Like it's just it's just immense the amount of exchange that happens in New York City and the things that you bump into. Um, you know, it's a really Massive place I couldn't even begin to know this this whole city, but it's fascinating because you go from place to place and you learn about the different neighborhoods and the history of those neighborhoods and the histories of the boroughs and the politics and the decisions that were made and it just becomes like this amazing ball of string that you can never fully unwind
1: <laughs> yes, always so, something to explore yeah always. always
0: always something new I'm always learning something new about the city and its history, and of course it, the city is constantly changing day to day moving forward so Um, you know, right now with all of our challenges with the pandemic, um, you know, it's a very tough time to be in New York, but it's also for me, it's going to be really thrilling because I have this confidence because of history and understanding the city that we're going to bounce back from this, uh, potentially faster than other places in the U S and I think in some ways, uh, stronger. So, um, let's hope that's the case anyways, but that's, that's what history tells me. So it's a, it's such a dynamic place, um, so that's, those are the reasons why I love it. That's great,
1: yeah. So given what you just said cities are for, um, what makes for a
0: really livable one? Well, I think that's where you can have those experiences in a safe way and an engaging way um, at scale, right? So I can have that experience um, in my neighborhood. I can get all that I need within a couple blocks of my house. Um, I can start to build that social exchange at a really hyper-local level and feel connected to my community. Um, at the same time, I can go a mile away to where my office is and I have a different community and a different rhythm there, but it kind of works the same way. Um, I can go five miles from here or ten miles from here and have that same experience. Um, so livable cities to me are where you can have all that and you can get around easily and you can find opportunity um, you know, in that sort of exchange and in those different scales around you, there's opportunity five miles from here, one mile from here, and fifty feet from here, in terms of the uh, exchange and again, exchange being defined as you know exchange in the broadest of senses, you know socially and economically, et cetera so it's um yeah it's a really interesting place there's also things that obviously make New York not livable, and that's why we are, all are in the fight to make it a better city for those of us who live and advocate here, and why everybody in every city um, I think is is in that same position, um, but I think what I really boil it down in New York City, it's about proximity, um, and I'm feeling that more than ever before, given the pandemic. Uh, if I was homebound, you know, on a cul-de-sac right now, I would and have to get into a car and drive 15 minutes to get a you know a gallon of milk. I think I would go insane. Um, I might you and me be, both. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably be that uh, anyways, but particularly now, my radius of life has kind of shrunk from, you know, on a weekly basis, I would probably on average travel three miles in any direction around me. And now that's about, that's less than 3000 feet. That's probably more like um, 300 feet on most days, but I can still get groceries. I can still, until recently when they closed the parks, I could get to two different parks with my son. Um, You know, we've got neighbors that we share childcare with, even through this pandemic who are a block and a half away. Who've um, become really part of our social circle, our only social circle at the time, at this time. And, you know, um, sister in law and her boyfriend, who we're very close with, who live down the hall from us. So, you know, you have like, these connections that are always important and there for you. And then you realize how important that proximity is when your range of daily life is shrunk by, you know,
1: 90%. Yes, I've been reflecting on that too. Um, my girlfriend, you know, we've been sheltering. At her place during this pandemic, and uh, she's never worked from home before, and now all of a sudden oh, wow. she's grounded uh, to this area, right her where she lives in, in Chicago, and she never really had to think about like what really is around me, even though she's in a very walkable place for Chicago, especially. Um, so yeah, it, it makes you rethink what's around you, what's lovable, what's interesting, what do I need to have a thriving
0: life right here. Yeah, that that calculus is different for every person, obviously, in every stage of life. So nothing's ever necessarily fully perfect, but it's definitely a moment when people around the country, no matter where they're living, no matter what setting, are going through that. You know, some people are wishing they had more proximity. Some people are wishing they had less and wanting more distance and space. And that's completely individual, right? And that's totally fine. um, But I just know for me, I I need that proximity. I'm very grateful for it. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Anyways, it's it's just it does put all that under a magnifying glass for everybody when you are literally homebound.
1: Yeah, indeed. Um at least for like the walkable aspects of cities or, or the walkable cities, I should say. Um, you know, are there are there universal aspects to
0: those that make them livable that you think? I think it's the amount of things that you can access on a on a you know, on a daily basis. That are both necessities and pleasures that are you know there for you within ten or fifteen minutes. Um, you know, you might have read recently Paris has advanced this concept of the fifteen minute city, and I love you know, that I idea. It's a, yeah, it's a great notion. You know, and I, I feel like um, if you are one who likes to bicycle and one who has proximity to transit, you know, I think a lot of things where I live in New York, we're very lucky to be where we are. But it's a it's a five minute city. Um, and the more of that I think we can build into places uh, in their DNA, the, the more livable these places become over time.
1: So you're really well-known by urban aficionados by your book, Tactical Urbanism. Um, great book, by the way. I loved reading it. Thank
0: uh you.
1: What, yeah, what inspired you to write this book?
0: Well, being frustrated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the root of all good inventions. Yeah, right, right.
0: Um, you know, I think... It does go back to my time living and working in Miami, and I was very involved with a planning firm there that was doing work nationally, but also working on a very politically complex rezoning project for the entire city of Miami. And I was fortunate to be involved with that project and being engaged with a lot of the um, public outreach and the meetings and kind of seeing behind the scenes how this stuff gets done. And, you know, the project was phenomenally progressive and wound up doing great things for the city. But, you know, it was on a five-year timeline just to create the project. And the types of places and spaces we were trying to communicate to the public in terms of urban design and where the city was headed was something that was so intangible to 99% of people who were engaged. They didn't understand it. They hadn't lived it. Um, You know, they couldn't understand how change could be beneficial for, for them. And then had this experience at the same time doing a lot of cycling advocacy, which is basically out of self-preservation because I was cycling every day uh, from Miami beach to the office, which is about seven miles one way. And it's a really deadly city to cycle in and really thinking through that. Well, if we're rezoning the whole city, we should probably be thinking about mobility and transportation at the same time. And here's this incredibly flat, warm weather, all year round city that should be great for cycling. The great grid of streets that is not great at all. Um, And so, yeah, through the work I was doing had the ear of the mayor and his his team. And one thing led to another and we got a few initiatives off the ground to finally get some livable streets going in, in Miami. And that first experience was doing open streets where the city shut down a few miles in the core of the city. And just for me as a planner and as a young professional, seeing the look on thousands of people's faces and the experience they were having in that event, which was, you know, probably cost about $20,000 and touched thousands yeah. of people, um, you know, worth every penny, because you could see in their eyes, the, their understanding that the city could be different, that they could be in the downtown and okay. not worry about you know, congestion or traffic, that they could be in the middle of the street appreciating these incredible historic buildings, which you wouldn't see necessarily if you were you know, behind the wheel of an automobile and only looking forward and not up and around you. you know? So it was that tangible experience that really inspired me to say, one, you know, long-term projects and rezonings really matter. and The policy really matters. But being able to give people the experience of that or understand why or how in the short term is really critical. So as I got more and more obsessed with that idea, I started looking around and, you know, at that time blogs and street films and streets blog was really starting to blow up. So I was able to like really tap into all these interesting things that were happening in the middle of the recession, like the last recession 10 years ago, 11 years ago, from not only around the country, but the world and seeing like a really common theme, which was whether it was a city delivering, you know, a pop-up, public space in the middle of Times Square for one weekend, or it was, you know, activists doing something in the middle of the night, that both ends of that spectrum were leading to transformative change in cities at a time when they were operating on a shoestring budget. And so there's that commonality amongst these different tactics, as I started to look at them and, and describe them as, that were really inspiring to me. So I said, okay, if if we're going to move forward with you know, both the long-term and the short-term, we've got to find a way to make the connection between the two. And there has to be a methodology for that. And that's when we started to, uh, one, started street plans, and then two, kind of built that into our way of doing things. And it turns out you know, it's less expensive. You learn a lot by iterating and trying things on a, on a small scale. You engage people in a completely different way. And you uncover what the next step should be as you go. So you kind of build the plane as you fly it. And it's kind of counterintuitive or uncomfortable for a lot of people who want surety from the beginning, but in my experience, it allows for a much more dynamic process, and so that's why we've really built our practice around for the last ten years.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And you talked about open streets kind of being that, that first um, event, that first thing that you that you really noticed this about. Um, describe to our audience what that is first, and then also then say. I mean you, you touched on it a little bit some of the some of the outcomes that you probably heard some people say about it. But um yeah. uh, say a little bit more about how that was transformative.
0: So open streets is when you temporarily shut down streets to automobiles and let people basically do anything but drive. So you can bike, you can walk, you can socialize, you can hang out at a cafe, you know, you can, you know, paint in the street, whatever. Um, and it's a movement that's actually been around for a very long time. You know, it's Actually, in, in, in North America, we had streets and parks closed down on weekends um, starting in the 60s, right? So there's a lot of amazing actual urbanist history in the 60s that gets overlooked a lot in terms of activism and, and what's come out of that. But it was really Bogota a decade later in the mid-70s that took that idea and really ran with it. And so at this point... Bogota closes seventy-seven miles of streets every Sunday in their city to let people engage in those activities. It's so incredible. It's incredible, and you know, I've had the, the fortune of experiencing that a couple of times. And it's the scale of it—you can't cycle the whole thing, you know. I mean, it's like you can't um, you can't experience a, the whole thing. What a, on a problem to have! <laughs> I know, right? But you know, it, it, they get a million people every weekend engaged in that. That's one eighth of their city who is physically active, I mean, the, there's a whole bunch of academic research to look at with the impact of that, um, and it's extremely low cost for them. But in any event, um, you know, North American cities started to get turned on to this idea around 2007 and 8. so it was really looking towards Bogota when we were in Miami and saying we should give people that experience of just being in the streets freely and, and see what happens. Um, and it's, you know, we've done a whole bunch of, of work and advocacy around open streets with communities around the country and the globe. But it's, it's just interesting now, 11, 10 years later, this is all coming back again, full circle, that uh, open streets are one, you know, one of the main tools being utilized right now for physical distancing and letting people you know, access parks more safely and, um, and be able to move around their communities in a way when we all need to be you know, spread apart. It's really this kind of incredible tool that is very resilient and has a very different meaning right now than it has in the past where you try to program it and congregate people and get people to really experience this.
1: All very top down.
0: Yeah. It's very, it's very different right now, but, um, in any event, the, that's one of the main tactics that we've seen be really successful and scalable. So whether you're a community of 5,000 people or, you know, 5 million, um, there are open streets programs around the country and around the world. So just in North America alone, there are programs in about 160 different cities. Um, and many of those are run by either nonprofit organizations or even by um, staff members with, inside of cities who are uh, managing the programs and the benefits and the sponsors and all that. So it's it's become a pretty big a big movement.
1: I'd like to press in a little bit, if I could, on, on how that got started. Because one of the themes of this podcast is um, kind of getting practical and, and giving people uh, advice on how to get started advocating where they live for a more livable version of it. So there's a, there's a lot there that that I'm sure went into this, this first open street in Miami. Um, first off, businesses. Were they for
0: it or against it? Kind of a mix. You know, I think at, at that time uh, in downtown Miami, one, the density was just, in terms of residential density, it was just starting to um, to increase pretty dramatically. So you had a lot of new people around downtown, living in downtown, looking for things to do on weekends that were... Obviously, in a walkable place, Um, but a lot of the businesses hadn't really caught up yet. So a lot of businesses were closed. Um, You know, there really the business uh, business district historically was nine to five, and it would shut down. There weren't a lot of restaurants, weren't a lot of cafes. So people were really hungry for things to do and places to go in the downtown in this neighborhood that was you know quickly developing. So you know, some businesses really thought, "Hey, bring a few thousand people, and that's really great for visibility." Others who were a little bit more traditional thought, "Well," you know, I sell, you know, washing, wash machines and dryers and, you know, no one's going to show up on a bike and try to buy one of those. So, um, but you know, valid point. But the idea being that we're going to expose, um, your business to people and audience that would not be exposed to otherwise, whether you sell anything that day or not. And, um, because it's so low risk, it's, you know, it's 9am to 2pm, you know, you don't have that much to lose. Like if it goes really, really badly, it's it's one day perhaps of missed sales um, out of 365 days or whatnot. Um, so we thought that was a risk worth taking and promoting, and the mayor got behind it. And you know I, I can't say that you know all those you know businesses that were selling things that were you know you know appliances or whatnot we're going to do great that day. But <laughs> other businesses did, and crime dropped, and people were super excited about it, and it was really about people coming together in the community, in the downtown, in a way that had not really happened before at that scale. So it was really exciting and catalytic. In fact, the mayor at that point committed to doing one of them, and this was November 2008, I believe, and it was such a success in many people's eyes that he wound up doing it every month until he was out of office um, the following fall. Well, I guess he skipped the summer months because it was so hot. But anyways, he did it nine more times until he That's was incredible. term. Termed out of the office. So, like, it was just this moment of, oh, we can do this and it's not that expensive. And, you know, in terms of like, a really practical tip, um, the initial cost estimate for running the program was, uh, was pretty expensive because of the time required for police to manage the street closures. And at that time, um, the police chief, um, Chief Timoney, was a runner. And he was a, you know, occasional cyclist. And he was someone who had previously come from Philadelphia. So he kind of intuitively understood what we were trying to do. He understood walkability. Um, he understood why that would be a good thing for runners like himself to go, go through the downtown on a Saturday morning run and, and not have to worry about cars in the street. So what he asked his officers to do was, look, if you normally work um, you know, five days a week, uh, and you usually have a you know Sunday off. What you're going to do this week is you're going to take Tuesday off when you would normally work, and just switch and instead. You're going to work on Sunday. And what that meant was no overtime was incurred, which meant the cost came way down from being I think the initial estimate was thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars for the first event just for the, the police time, and that came down to five thousand dollars. So big difference. Huge, huge difference in a way that made the program you know scalable and replicable. Yeah. And and if your police chief is behind it, which again is no small feat, but if, your police, if you're lucky enough to have a police chief who really understands why it's good for the community, why it might positively impact crime, um, why it's good for physical health and, and and the community itself, I mean, he just, he got it. So that was a huge blessing at that time and um, the program took off. And it, you know, it, it kind of was around for several years and it died away and then it came back with some, some state funding um, from the Department of Transportation for a couple of years and then it's it's waned again. So. You know, there's these things that, that don't get sustained if you don't have the leadership to sustain them. And unfortunately, that's kind of been the case in Miami over the years. But um, you know, many cities still, still do this, and they do it five, six, seven, eight, nine times a year, um, which is great. It's no, no Bogota, but there's been right. a lot of progress on this in the United States.
1: Yeah, and that very first moment where, when it was an idea, um, how did you get started?
0: Well, it was like looking to other cities who had done it, you know and mm-hmm. trying to understand and at that time, there was this uh street film that was produced in two thousand and seven when Clarence Eckerson and Aaron Napperstek and a few other uh heroes went down to to Bogota to film this thing and experience it and it was really great because it, it was kind of a nuts and bolts film it's not always the type of film that Clarence shoots um, in some ways, but it was like looking at know the barricades and the closures and how they do it and the programming and the activity. Like it was just really eye-opening and instructive for somebody yeah. who was looking how to do this and then, all stuff you, know, you need to know how to do. Yeah, stuff you need to know how to do and then also realize that most cities actually do have a muscle for this. Like a lot of cities have festivals and they have block parties and while this is different than that, it's like it requires a lot of the same technical skills or the approach in terms of management and um, and marketing. The, the program, the event. So, you know, there's a lot of transferable things that you can look at to find inspiration. And I think it's really wise when communities start at a pretty manageable scale. If you've never done this in your community, you try to get 10 miles closed. Uh, that can be extremely challenging. If you get a mile to start, make that two, make that three, make that six. Uh, and that's how oftentimes how communities build out their programs as they start at that smaller scale, like a tactical project and they learn as they go and they are able to then scale it up.
1: Yeah, indeed. And how did you choose like what street you wanted to uh, tackle first?
0: Well, I was not um, personally involved with the the details of the route planning. I think you know, one, we wanted it to be iconic, though. Like that was definitely a big push. So it included Flagler Street, which is historically Miami's main street in the core of the city. So that was kind of a must. And then you know, that's a really pedestrian-oriented street, anyways. Um, and then there's a whole other, you know, district just to the south across the river um, that is fast developing, um, continues to be fast developing, but at that time it was really taking off called Brickell. And so the idea is kind of connect the two nodes and there's a, you know, commercial mixed use kind of center in Brickell that has a lot of restaurants and cafes that stood to do very well with this event. And so we want to tie that into it. So... I wasn't there at the planning meetings for every nut, you know, nuts and bolts issue, but that was certainly the design idea: was to connect those two neighborhoods and do it in a way that felt you know, really exciting. Like over bridges and main streets, and getting those vistas in the parks um, aligned and open to extend the route. It just—it all kind of came together.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So once this all came together, um, at least um, what you wanted to do with the other folks you're working with. Um, did you go to the mayor next? Did you go to council people? You know, how did how did you plant that idea into the officials' minds?
0: So the idea got planted because of the mayor understanding that they should, you know, the city should be focusing more on cycling. And so myself and uh, a small committee of people who um, who got an audience with the mayor. Um, said, look, we, we think there should be some policies and some actions that are rolled out. Some of these should be very quick and very attainable to kind of build momentum. And one of those actions was to do an open streets event. And the idea was, let's get this idea exposed to the wider population. Let's promote cycling and livability. Um, let's connect it to issues like the rezoning, like really use it as a platform for at that time, the mayor's you know um, goals and, and, and policies that he was trying to advance before he left office and that was kind of a no brainer in a home run. So, um, you know, having it in that sort of, um, oh, it's been like a 10 page action plan of here are the, the top things we could do. Um, it really helped. And so it became the thing that was the most, I think, exciting and invisible and to the wider community of people in the city. Um, and it, obviously the most tangible and actual in terms of like, okay, we can kind of see how to do this, um, building out, you know, priority bike lanes is going to take a little time, it's going to take design, it's going to take consultants, etc. But this was something that was more event-based and could be done quickly. So I think that really caught the mayor's attention and his, his team's attention and that's what got advanced first.
1: This is Liverpool City with guest Mike Leiden, founder of Street Plans and author of Technical Urbanism. In your book, you talk a lot about um, these tactical type uh, urbanist um, type projects, right? They're they're typically small scale. Um, they're not like you know, let's get a huge construction crew and um, put in an amazing new mixed use building, or redo a street by cutting lanes in half permanently, right? Um, what's what's really the strength of this? Why why is this? Why are tactical projects really effective
0: in your mind? I think they're really political, or they're politically savvy, let's say. Um, What I learned in those early years in Miami was that, uh, and this is something they don't teach you necessarily in graduate school when you go to planning school, um, the intensity of the politics around change and the economic implications of that, right? So uh, I learned that lesson by observing how upzoning or downzoning property in Miami was was going to make winners and losers. And the upzonings in particular brought out a particular zeal of NIMBY in that I don't want that eight-story building next to me. You know, density means, you know, those people and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, cloaked in racism and classism, et cetera. So there was a lot of that. And it kind of dawned on me, too, that these really shorter-term, quick projects were a lot less risky politically um, and they are able to build a wider constituency of people who are pushing for the ideas. Because when you, when you go to enough community meetings and you see the same people, you start to realize that it's, it's a really narrow band of the population and that there are broader opinions and people who support things and don't always show up to support them in a public forum. And you've got to reach those people with positive outlets for that support. And so tactical projects become part of that, right? They become an outlet for you know, positive things to be tried out without totally committing to them and showing there's a wider audience of people that it can work, that people support it. And when you do that, you know, politicians show up, they smile, they see it, they get excited, they wanna do more of it. And it kind of builds on itself um, from that perspective. And yeah, it also becomes a way to technically prove something. You can measure what works and what doesn't and you can be humble enough to know that, geez, we really didn't get that right. And thank goodness we got that right at the, you know, the interval of you know, traffic tape and not with you know, curb and concrete because that's a lot harder to change after the fact. So it's an extremely flexible as an approach to trying new things in communities. And so you can go to some places that where you can't move fast enough, that tactical projects aren't fast enough because there's such a thirst and desire to progress and do new things. But those places are actually the exception. Um, the norm is more... You know, we're a little bit afraid of change. That seems like a different idea. We've never done that here. That won't work here. You know, people won't get on bikes. They won't sit in public spaces. They won't eat at cafes outside. Right. All the excuses. They won't go outdoors in winter. You know, it's yep. just excuses after excuse after excuse. They won't ride a bike in Miami in the summer. Like, it just, it all comes out. So this becomes a way to, be like, well, we just had a thousand people come out and it was 85 degrees and they were cycling yep you can't tell me that people won't come out and do this when you give them something to do. You just saw it. Yeah, exactly. So it's an evidence-based approach to change-making, and it's this political tool that kind of just cuts through all the the BS and says, like, does this work or does it not? If it works, let's double down. If it doesn't, let's move on.
1: Yeah, and what do do you think that city leaders automatically draw the right conclusions from this type of thing, or they just see it as, oh, that was a nice event? Uh, Yeah, we can do another event like that again.
0: I think it depends. You know, I think some definitely have that feeling like, great, I got to shake hands. Um, It was positive. It was fun. But a lot of people aren't seeing the connection between how you make that step change between that was a fun weekend event or that was a good week-long test. I generally support this. But how do we even do that for, you know, the 10-year timeline or the 100-year timeline? That jump is still something that we're working on a lot with communities and with our clients is like, it's all connected and you have to build the tools and the policies to make it happen. Um, and it's extremely possible. It's just, it's it often is. overlooked.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. almost like launching a business, right? You have your first idea and maybe you like prototype something, but you know, it's like, how do you how do you get to that point of actually having customers that value this? Right? And it's, exactly. it's the same kind of thing here with these projects, I think. Exactly,
0: yep, you got it. Um, yeah. You know, and same thing with our business, you know, we started preaching this and working on these projects 10 years ago and you know the level of sophistication and the outcome that we get now is just light years beyond where it was 10 years ago so it's you know even inside of your own practice like they call it a practice for a reason you're you're trying to get better at something over time and you have to allow yourself the time to get better um you know it can be the same thing with with physical projects in in our streets and public spaces
1: yeah what kind of projects do you think um tactical urbanism type projects or you know what are what are the really good ones that um, you see most commonly that that get good reception, good results, that kind of thing in a in a wide swath of cities.
0: You know I think it's whenever you are able to um, show, basically uncover what seems like it's hidden in plain sight. If that makes sense, like there's so much space around us that we don't we just take for granted. We don't think it could be anything else. Whether that's a vacant lot. You know, or a vacant storefront, or it's you know a big intersection or um, a parking lot. We just don't, as human beings, necessarily jump to oh, this is going to be an amazing plaza. Or geez, there's room for you know um, a ten foot wide protected bike lane there. People don't see it, but it's all there. So what you know gets people so excited, what makes these projects so effective, is that when you can show people that space can be repurposed and used in a better, more productive way without really changing the operation of a space that much. You know what I'm saying? Like You can um, you know, think about a project in Asheville, North Carolina that we did where we took a two-lane street, which had bike lanes and some speeding cars, and we just made some very small dimensional tweaks and flips and painted the street, and it was just a completely different environment you know, after the weekend. And that was a year-long pilot project that really bore out in the data extreme success in slowing down cars and adding value to the neighborhood um, in a really positive way, people don't, they couldn't look at that street initially and see any possibility for that. That's just, it wasn't, that's a project that couldn't be done. And then you do it. And then like, oh, I see. Like, even if you don't agree with it, you see that there is a way to rethink space. And it becomes this, this way for people to engage in reality and not in theory. You know, it's not A proposal that's on the screen it's not you know a study that was done academically or just using you know simulations it's like a real place and you can go out there and you can say I like this or I don't Um, and that's really the when you can do that and do it effectively and show people it tends to build a muscle in a community where they want to try to do it in other places and embed that in the way they think about public engagement and designing and managing change in their community. I love that. That's really deep. Uh,
1: something you touched on there, like this collective muscle um, learning how to do something together that, uh, you know, is outside of just an individual. Like that's
0: that's super powerful. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the projects that are successful too, just to get really into it, is um, they involve, to your point, they, they involve the community as a community of non-experts. Like there are people that we are able to work with who aren't, you know, they don't know how to go measure a curb radius. And then you go out there and you do it with them. Like, okay, that wasn't so hard, right? Or I don't know the dimensions <laughs> of a bike lane. Like, okay, it's this. Let's go measure it and do it. It becomes like this very simple geometry yep. problem or project, right? Where people start, oh, I can pick up a paintbrush and paint, you know, between the lines. It's not that hard. So you're able to um, make people believe that they have the power, which they do, to make their community better. And then you can show People who are experts who feel like, well, I'm an expert, so you know, a layperson couldn't, you know, clearly couldn't pick this up after you know a day and go do it, when they, in fact they can't. So it kind of equalizes a lot of people, and um, you know, I've seen mayors and city councilors, um, people of high standing in their community, kind of come out and do this do this work with us and get their their hands dirty. Like this is this is kind of amazing. Like I didn't know that we could just go do this. <laughs> you can you're the mayor you tell us tell your community to do it we'll find a way to do it yeah so let's apply it to the current
1: crisis right so i think it's an awesome opportunity to see for for everybody to see where they live um what is basically hiding in plain sight like you said earlier right there's all of a sudden without you know in chicago i think the traffic's down to like 40 percent, if that of normal normal traffic volumes right and uh, all of a sudden, you notice, man, these streets are wide and they 're cavernous. Mm. Um, what can we do with them? Or look at all these empty parking lots. Oh, I see a family out there that 's doing social distancing, using it as a plaza to play soccer in right you know why do we why do we dedicate all this space to this stuff otherwise um, so say a city um, say one of our listeners lives in a city that hasn 't reserved any street space for um healthy social distancing, how, how would they help point this out to their city? How do they get started saying, requesting like, hey, can we try this street like, like a mile or like half a mile, it's just something really humble?
0: You know, I think it's, it's there's a way to focus right now on like observing where people are gathering or where you're starting to feel that pressure, and that might be different in every community to a degree, but what we're seeing nationally is um, parks. Are more cherished and used right now than maybe you know ever before, particularly on weekdays, and people need to get out and get that you know half hour of walking or running or biking, you know which they can do uh, with safe distances if the space is provided. parks in our country for whatever reason tend to have a lot of roads through them, <laughs> and a lot of those roads don't really serve a transportation purpose they tend to be like old carriageways or, you know, cut through routes, but they're not really main commercial thoroughfares. So closing them is really low hanging fruit. And it's a way to not only give people more space in the park where people are already gathering, um, but it's a way to probably promote that this could be something that goes on well after this pandemic subsides and recedes. You know, there's, there's no reason you should have people driving cars at 30 miles an hour through the middle of our parks, right? That seems like a kind of a crazy idea. Um, when, and I think people are seeing that now. They're realizing that's kind of a crazy idea. So that's where of the 60 plus cities that we've currently documented who have these initiatives, the majority of them are in parks um, or along waterfronts actually as well, where people tend to go along trails or promenades or walkways where you get to the water and it's a it's a linear physical activity that you can engage in. That's that's all very low hanging fruit. Um, I think one thing that's really obvious is like you can just take photographs and um, use social media to alert people to the situation that doesn't seem particularly, particularly safe right now in our communities. You know, in New York, you know, we're a very walkable city, but when you get down to it, once you account for the sidewalk width, the street trees, the street furniture, the signs, all these things, it's really hard actually to find a street where you can walk with six feet between you, particularly when you have any level of density. So it's particularly acute here. Um, All of our main streets have grocery stores and pharmacies and things that people have to go to at some point in their week, and um, the sidewalks don't really support that. So we can document that at whatever level locally and share that with your city leaders and then propose ways that people could um, take back some of that space. Then it's a a huge opportunity. Um, You you don't even have to fully close streets to cars either. There's a lot of communities that are just taking the parking lane away and making that an extension of the sidewalk just using cones. Um, that makes a lot of sense in a commercial district when the traffic volumes as you noted in Chicago are way down, they're way down in every city, a lot of people aren't driving, there's not as much competition for parking. So if you take away 20 spaces on you know, four blocks and then neighborhood Main Street, like that's great because now you can use that for expanded space where people can pass at a safe distance while they're shopping and getting groceries. So. Yeah, you know, I think this idea really does kind of scale down to the community of Scott, Maine, where I live, with four block Main Street, and it scales up to Chicago and Brooklyn and, and Los Angeles. You know, I think it's it's all applicable. Um so there's a variety of those types of tactics that you can think about and document it and kind of push leaders to see it because they're they maybe they're not seeing it actually, um, or understanding the physical implications of of this pandemic and how we're responding to it. Indeed,
1: yeah. And and how do you like so so if you're one city, and actually I think Chicago has not closed any streets yet, which is surprising. But so this applies equally to me as well as some other listeners uh, of my podcast. But um, say your city isn't doing that today, and you think there's a ripe opportunity to close something, how do you how do you get their attention? Like where where would you start if you were starting from scratch?
0: I mean, you've you've got to go right to city councilors and the mayors and their staff. I mean, it's just. No faster way to get attention um, at the same time you need to build a coalition of people who feel um, the see the opportunity and feel the need is, is equally as important um, so to build kind of the, the support on both sides and it, it can kind of crest as a campaign I mean, I'm noticing right now on Twitter that uh, people in Boulder are really pissed. <laughs> people in Boulder, Colorado are really upset with their leadership and I keep seeing a lot of these tweets from Basically, taking the stuff that I'm sharing, that's happening around the globe, and then people locally in Boulder redirecting them at their at their leadership. Um, you know, who knows if that's actually going to work? And Twitter is certainly not the best way necessarily to advocate, but it's it's a tool a outlet that catches attention politically um, with leaders um, from time to time. So, uh, anyways, it's. You've, you've got to think about your own personal city councilor. If you have a relationship with them, if you don't, go build one. Who's the head of council? Who's the city manager? Who's the mayor? Think about how you can, you know, share these ideas with those types of people. And I can tell you that in a city like New York, that's a that's less easy. It definitely there's plenty of channels for it, but um, in a smaller city, say of 100,000 people, or 30,000, or 10,000 it's a lot easier to have access to your city leaders and to come up with something that's, that's, you know, a credible plan and it's doable. Um, You know, Des Moines, Iowa is not, it's not a big city, but it's not a small city either. You know, it's a a midsize, you know, Midwest city. Um, They've closed down a few blocks around one of their most active parks in the downtown. Like that's not the 74 miles that Oakland is, is planning to do on shared streets. And maybe it doesn't have to be like that, that can be actually work quite well if that's where, a lot of people in the downtown core have been congregating, maybe being too close. Maybe all it takes is a couple blocks to pr- you know, provide that release valve. So everything can kind of scale up and scale down based on the community.
1: Yeah, and you're saying there's no, there's no easy way, there's no shortcut to um, basically getting this done. you got to build a relationship with your city, city leadership in some way. Yeah.
0: If you're going to do it longer term or like in the midterm and have that uh, relationship be of any value to you, absolutely. Could you go out with cones and, and cone it off in the middle of the night yourself? Yeah, totally. And you might get a really great positive response from that. Honestly, a lot of times that does work or draws enough attention or is the only thing that draws attention to the issue. Um, but it can also backfire in some ways. And ultimately, you you do need to work with your elected leaders to... Sustain these types of things, and to build broader support. And if there's any hope of some of these projects and initiatives lasting, you know, beyond the pandemic, you're going to need political support to do it, and staff support at the city level. So you've got to kind of calculate those the risk and reward of um, of the guerrilla action. But I will be the first to say it can be very effective.
1: Yeah, yeah. Say more about that. That's a big theme in your book. Uh, you know, you go through five specific exa- examples. Um, some of them were. Uh, official from the from day one, while others were guerrilla, or an aspect of it, you know, what point do you say, go guerrilla?
0: <laughs> I mean, I think if you try every channel, um, politically, you do that respectfully, you try to build coalitions with leaders, and you're getting absolutely nowhere, but you still feel that there's a broader community support for something, even at the scale of an intersection or a block. If you feel like, man, everyone on this block is so tired of this issue, of this trash not being picked up, of this intersection being unsafe and no one's paying attention, we've tried this for years, then I feel like it's a really good time to go um, and try something yourself. And that can be a really simple thing and it can be really clever at the same time. Um, We've seen a lot of that where, you know, you give somebody a clever name, you do something under the cloak of an event permit, but you don't really use the event permit for the reason that you actually signed up to do it. Like, these are all the tactics that you can kind of engage in where the whole principle is that you ask for forgiveness and not permission. And it's it's a calculated risk that one has to take. It's a risk that somebody with privilege already, who doesn't have to worry as much about being arrested or um, deal with those types of issues um, in an oppressive way, probably has an advantage of uh, being able to think freely about doing this in the middle of the night, right? Some communities may not feel like they have the ability to do that um, and do it safely without risking their own personal, you know, um, their own personal safety, but... If you have that privilege, it's something that can really push the needle um, and advance political leaders into thinking differently about a space. Uh, You know, I I think of this great example from Seattle. Actually, two examples, one that come to mind. One is there's a group that was tired of a dangerous stretch of roadway underneath a highway overpass. And they decided to go out in the middle of the night and put up protective barriers for the bike lane that existed and they called themselves the reasonably polite seattleites which is clever right it's just kind of this we're trying to be polite we know this is technically illegal but we're doing this out of the benefit of our community we feel like this is civic duty and they wrote this really polite letter to the city saying here's why we did it and the city engineer one of the engineers writes back and like is really thoughtful like thank you we understand um, we we're going to take action now to install more permanent protection and we'll keep that protection in place. You've raised this issue as a priority. Like, squeaky wheel, right, Gets, gets the grease, right? So it's, it's really that principle that um, can move the needle on things. Um, another good example in Seattle for a completely different context and neighborhood um, is actually um, uh, an African-American neighborhood that was experiencing a lot of gentrification. And every year they have a festival where they celebrate um, kind of African history and culture. And in advance of that festival, people in that community went out and they painted their own crosswalks in the colors of the Pan-African flag. And they did it as like a marker of place. Like this is placemaking for, for our community. Like this is what we're about. And we're here, we're still here. And we want safe streets. We wanna be like recognized that this is our community. Um, that was technically illegal, obviously. Um, But the city of Seattle, again, to their credit, said, okay, we understand why you did that. Um, We don't necessarily approve of you doing it uh, in every intersection and and taking over the streets. But let's design a process around which we can all work together to create art that reflects the identity of communities citywide. And the lesson in that is that um, to make something equitable... You have to offer it right, as, a, as a, you know, something that everybody can engage in citywide, no matter what the community is, their background and the history and race, you know, uh, income class, all those things. You have to think about how do you take a good idea like that crosswalk and then open it up to everybody else. And so you have to create a program around it. That's what Seattle did. So now they've got you know, dozens and dozens of colorful, creative, artistic crosswalks that, um, that kind of speak to, to place. And that's an amazing response. And so like that, those are two examples from a single city where that illegal action that was well intended resulted in a longer-term change that was sustained and scalable.
1: I love that picture, yeah. It's kind of this concept that you also talk about in the book of empathetic urbanism. And what, what role do you think empathy, both uh, if you're a citizen or if you're um, part of the leadership, has on livability of a city?
0: I think it's huge. I mean, you, I think we have to understand whether you're an activist or advocate, or you're just someone going out your, your daily life and you're frustrated by something, or if you're in city hall and you're working to advance and you know you love your city and you're trying to make it a better place. Everybody has their limitations and their frustrations, and the processes which we have to work within are not always perfect. You know, they're never perfect. Let's say, and understanding where people are coming from and that experience is really important. Just humanly to understand that we all are trying to do things that are positive, right? Um, without that perspective, then you tend to really clash and, um, and you disrespect one another and that doesn't get anyone far ever, right? So I think thinking through those perspectives as a baseline is important. And then thinking about people's own lived experience, if you're somebody who drives a car every day and you've never taken the bus, and you have no idea what it's like to cross a five-lane arterial with no crosswalk, to wait on the side of the road with no, cross, no sidewalk, and no bus shelter, and it's pouring rain, and you have to take three of those buses to get to work, you don't understand what that's like. So you have to do it. And once you've done it, you can truly understand, oh, I, maybe I wouldn't design the street this way. Yeah, such a great image. Maybe we should provide a shelter for when it rains. You know, It's like these little things that are pretty actually inexpensive and, and, and basic that we are so bad at in America when we think about the public realm and, and, and who's engaging and who's there and, and who it's for and what it's for. Um,
1: yeah, I you think know, we yeah. lack that empathy uh, quite a bit, right? Um, yeah. like, there's like this big um, rift in between who actually uses things versus who's designing them, um, and then, you know, rightfully so, it's really tough to relate to each other. Like, how, how would city engineers, you know, uh, departments of trans- transportation know what to design if they have no clue what people actually need? They just so, assume right. more cars, right, need to get right. to places.
0: You know you know hopefully they're going to a job that will allow them to, to afford a car one day it's like no right. that's not that's not the answer in fact we should you know cherish these people who are taking our transit system their <laughs> their emissions are way lower they're far more responsible as you know as part of the traveling public than anyone driving you know a car for a mile just to get a gallon of milk that's just the stupidest thing so um you know there's 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 more empathy and more respect we need to have for people and to understand where, where people are coming from and you know I also live this every once in a while, where uh, you know, I don't own a car, I don't drive on a frequent basis very often, but when I do drive, and particularly when I drive in, in the Northeast and around New York, and run a car and go do something, I get so frustrated, I just get so angry and so upset, and I just want to get to where I'm going, and I sometimes stop myself, I'm like, alright, so people who deal with this on a daily basis, like I understand why they're frustrated, I understand why they want that parking spot, I understand why they're You know, honking their horn or just speeding between lights because they've been doing this for 45 minutes, they've been in traffic the whole time, and it's extremely stressful. So, again, you have to live all different realities to understand what people are going through and then try to figure out, well, what would entice that person to not have to drive 45 minutes every day to get to work? What would that mean? And you start to, like, look at that ball of string, and it's extremely complex, but you can start to unwind it and start to create the types of places we want to live in when people have choices. And I think that's the most important thing is people can have those choices and most places in America, they don't. Such a good
1: image. It's like, we need to, you're calling people to understand each other again, like who lives around them and what do they need? Let's let's get out of the theory and get into like, all right, people have their daily lives, they have their daily realities. What do they actually need? What do they want? So um, is there a new book in store? So you talked a a little bit about... um, you know, taking this this notion of starting with the technical urbanism type project, but then you know once once you implement it and it's it's a success, what comes then? Uh, are you talking? To, uh, are you going to do a new book
0: around that kind of topic? So we've got always publications that we're working on. Um, this last year we actually released um, a whole uh, publication on transit and tactical urbanism and how you think about you know quickly producing better experiences on transit, primarily buses. Um, And we've also released a guide to asphalt art, which is how do we make our streets engaging and beautiful, but also geometrically perform better for safety and for placemaking, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. We've released a number of these kinds of publications since we released the book in 2015. We've learned a ton since 2015. Like I look at the book now and like any author would, you kind of cringe at the examples and the imagery, like oh, we've got so much better stuff to show now. So, <laughs> you know, I think what we're working on in the in the most immediate term is kind of two things. Um, one is we're going to do an update to the original book. Um, it's been five years, and um, there's again just a ton of progression in the tactical urbanism movement. There's been a maturation. There's been an expansion of it globally. There's been successes and new failures. There's a lot to kind of dig into. Um, but I think what's really compelling right now is um, the pandemic and how people are kind of rediscovering tactical urbanism and thinking, "Wow, this is kind of built for this moment. We need those quick, um, those quick projects, and we need to really be nimble and maybe be tactical by thinking through how these nimble projects can inform longer-term change in our cities. So we are driving less and there's less pollution. We have less crashes and accidents, and more livable communities. Like people are kind of." really seeing that right now, so we want to really capture that. Like, how can Um, we get more of that? How can we get more of that? And so that's an important update that we want to do in the next year or so. Um, We're also about to release a second volume of our Materials and Design Guide, which really looks at the methodology and the materials to produce projects at different intervals. So we've learned that there's materials that are really appropriate for one weekend, for one month, for one year, for five years, and you need to think through the time intervals and in your budgets, and what your goals are, and what you know, what's the duration that you should be engaging with based on your goals. And so, that guide will have a whole bunch of new materials and a whole bunch of new case studies for volume two. Beyond that, um, the idea I've been working on in the background for eight or nine years is about this notion of um, what we call the pattern city, and that. Cities, like, in aggregate are kind of like humans, uh, you know, comparing themselves psychologically, you know, and wanting to mimic others when they see success. And there's a whole bit of human psychology I want to learn more about and delve into that relates to how innovations and policies and infrastructure kind of spread across the world. And a really quick example is, you know, New York City, (laughs) our mayor said the other day, you know, Uh, When Oakland decided to close 74 miles, not close, but create 74 miles of shared streets, slow-speed streets during the pandemic, our mayor in New York kind of scoffed at Oakland and said, well, we're not like them. We would never do that here. That's Oakland. Um, New York City doesn't look to Oakland. They don't look to Topeka. They don't, quite frankly, look to Chicago. New York City looks to London. They look to Hong Kong. They look to Paris for for inspiration. And so you see a lot of in San Francisco, actually. So you see a lot of exchange and sharing and copying and mimicking between these kind of like global cities. Um, but when you zero in on cities at a more regional uh, level within the state or within, you know, in a, say the Southeast or the Southwest, you know, San Diego is not necessarily looking at San Francisco, but they're probably looking at LA and Phoenix, you know, and that's where you see it on a smaller scale, those innovations kind of traveling between each other. Um, and so there's this whole interesting idea of how, progress happens in cities and who is inspired by who and why um, in terms of peers. And I want to dig into that because I think there's a really core idea there around transferability and scalability and um, learning that is sometimes correct and sometimes false. You know, I think there's a lot that New York can learn from Chicago and Topeka that we don't ever take into account because we think we're New York, we're this great city. Um, So there's like lessons, lessons. yeah. there's lessons in that, which um, I want to know more about.
1: I wonder if it's almost a little bit of like what you believe is possible in your city and that's who you look to, right? It's like, oh, so-and-so is roughly equivalent and they did this.
0: Therefore, we can do that. Exactly. And look, that's not a bad place to start, but it also hems you into things that we, you know, we set these limits and barriers around ourselves because we don't think we are good enough or have enough or big enough. Um, and uh, when it comes to the kinds of things that we care about, uh, that's never the case.
1: Yeah. So I'll put this in the show notes, but where can the listeners find these guides that you're talking about?
0: You can go to uh, tacticalurbanismguide.com, and all of our free downloadable publications are, are there. There's a, there's a bunch of them. Um, and you can also go to uh, street-plans.com, and that's our website with kind of latest news and projects and things that we're working on.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Um, so, as we're coming towards the end of our conversation, Mike, um, any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? That's a pretty open-ended question. <laughs> it is, yeah. Anything? Just saying, you know, the mic is yours.
0: I mean, take care of each other right now. I mean, I feel like the the understanding that no matter who you're coming across on the street is under any uh, any amount of you know abnormal stress right now is just something we have to take into consideration. Um, you know, everyone's coming from a different place and dealing with stress differently and just knowing that is in the background can help us, I think, all think about being kind and empathetic to each other in the public realm, which I think we need now more than ever. And we need that more to get ever. we need that to get through this. And, you know, I can just tell you, my favorite part of the day right now in New York is at seven PM when we all open our windows and everybody claps, um, for all the essential workers who are getting us through this and putting themselves at great risk. And that's a really important moment in the day to kind of stop and get out of your own head of like, I'm living in this small apartment with a toddler and I've been working all day and it's stressful. And then you stop and like, you know what, it's not so bad. <laughs> there are people at much greater risk. And so just kind of carrying that with you is a really important lesson during these times. Oh, it's such a good image. Yeah. Uh,
1: Mike, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'd love to do this sometime in the future again, if you're up for it. Let's do it
0: post-pandemic. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm all about that. <laughs> be a different Thank time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode where I interviewed Mike Leiden. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you have more questions, please consider joining the Livable City Facebook group under the name Livable City. Just search Facebook for it and you'll find it. Or look at the show notes for the direct link. If you have feedback or want to get in contact with me, please email me at thelivablecity at gmail.com. Also, you can find me on Twitter at livable_city. underscore city. Also, if you have a spare moment, please consider rating Livable City on iTunes. It goes a long ways to making sure that this message can get out to as many people who are interested as possible. Thank you so much for considering that. And until next time, remember to listen, learn, and then lead. Thanks, everybody. Bye.